there was a, probably a turning point in your mind of when it didn't feel as safe in California as it has before. We saw that with Prop 47. Prosecutors said, when you pass this in about 10 years, we're going to see businesses closing because people are going to be stealing right and left, and you're going to see addicts on the street. And people said, oh, you're just these draconian prosecutors trying to scare everybody so that you can lock more people up in prison. And nothing could be further from the truth. In our county, we had two inmates who were sentenced to state prison who later were released early for reasons we can't determine, only to commit murders in a neighboring county. So honestly, as an elected district attorney, I have people from my county being released from prison early, and I don't know why. My guest today is Morgan Geyer, District Attorney of Placer County, California, who has over 24 years of experience working in the criminal justice system. Today, he'll discuss with us the recent criminal justice reforms in California, and in his opinion, how they've contributed to the rising crime. He also gives us his insights on improving the criminal justice system in California. No matter how many times you steal, we're gonna treat you as if it was your first time and you can only suffer the consequences of a misdemeanor. And you may get a, a year-long jail sentence and you're out in a few days. That's sort of a, a symptom of a host of policy changes that the state has gone through over the course of the last 10, 15 years. I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Morgan, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. We are excited to have you on because I want to talk to you about some things that are happening that is very hard for average Californians to figure out. There was a 71-year-old man that's been robbing banks, and I got caught robbing a bank. Apparently, he had prior, uh, he was in prison, and he got released a few years ago. There was another incident that actually really shocked me. It was in Oakland. We've been looking at Oakland, what's going on there. People trying to break into this jewelry shop and cash for gold type of store. And the store attendant realized that they're coming to rob them. So he had guns, so he started shooting at them. They shot back at him. Luckily, I think he didn't get hurt. And I think they didn't suffer major injuries. But they ran out, and there's like bullet holes in the store. This is kind of happening more and more in California, which was when I moved here, it, nothing like this was happening. I came here in the year 2001, and nothing like this was happening. Wh what are your thoughts? Can you explain to us what's going on? Absolutely. Those are, those are terrible incidents that are sadly all too common. And, it, and it, I think it represents, for most Californians, this perception that accountability is lacking in our criminal justice system, that we aren't either holding people accountable, or when we do, it's for too little or not significant enough to put someone either off the streets long enough or to provide them the opportunity to achieve redemption and rehabilitate so that they come out and not rob banks again. And with regard to the, the, the jewelry store theft, I think that's, or robbery I should say, I think that's, most Californians I think truly think that it, it's on the business owners oftentimes to solve the problem because business owners Maybe they can't rely on law enforcement, or law enforcement has their hands tied behind their back, or prosecutors can't do enough. And it is very frustrating to me as someone who has spent my entire career in the criminal justice system to see that feeling of powerlessness on the part of our residents and our business owners because there are so many people in this, count, in this state who are dedicated to helping victims, to prosecuting people, to arresting the bad guys, and making sure that the system actually protects everyone so that we can 
sort of restore this feeling of safety? Because even as you remarked it, there was, there was a, probably a turning point in your mind of when it didn't feel as safe in California as it has before. And that, that's sort of a, a symptom of a, a host of policy changes that the state has gone through over the course of the last 10, 15 years. And you know, Morgan, most people have no idea what these policies are. And we want to learn this from you today of what has been the key changes in your opinion that has caused us to see shootings, shootouts like that? And there, there have been a number. There have been, and, and they all sort of are intertwined with one another, and they all have this sort of cascading effect. So when you, when you look present day and you say, okay, what, what, what is it that caused this? You look back and you see four or five different significant policy changes. And it, it started when as a sort of an, a correction to what was perceived as a sort of too tough on crime policies in the in the mid 90s and late 90s when we had seen violent crime increase in the 70s and 80s and there was a there was a reaction to it and we saw it for example with things like the three strikes legislation and there was a uh, in the at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s there was a, a sort of a philosophy on the part of particularly the legislature and a lot of policymakers that said we need to be softer. We need to be less aggressive with crime and holding people accountable. Part of that was maybe a dip in crime rates, which is a whole other topic on whether or not those crime rates are accurate. But there was a shift. The most significant one was what we call realignment, or AB 109, which was when the state of California said we're going to transfer the custody of thousands and thousands of prison inmates who are serving state prison sentences, and we're going to put them back in the county jails. And almost overnight, our county jails, which are not designed to house people long term, your county jail is where you stay if you don't make bail and you're waiting for trial, or it's where you serve short sentences. And almost overnight, these places became long-term housing facilities, which means you have to provide medical care, you have to provide educational training, you have to provide vocational training, mental health treatment, and the county jails weren't sufficient for that. For how long were they designed? They were designed for what kind of a... They were designed ultimately for no more than a year or two at most. Oftentimes, like large cases might take a while, like a murder case, for example, might take a year or two, sometimes even longer, to get to trial because of the complexity and the seriousness of the case. So there may be people who are waiting that period of time, or the county jail was designed to house people who were serving originally no more than a year in custody. The old school of thought was, and the old law was, a misdemeanor was punished by no more than 365 days in the county jail. And so that's about the maximum for low-level misdemeanor offenses and some felonies. If you got probation or you got a jail sentence on top of it, you would go to the county jail. But if you were going to spend a year and a half, two years, three years, ten years in custody, you were supposed to do it in the state prison because it was designed to do that. And because of budget cuts, because of some overcrowding issues and some federal lawsuits, the state of California said, the legislature said, we want to take the responsibility for all of these inmates that we sort of consider non-violent or non-serious and we're going to take them out and we're going to put them in the county jail. So all of a sudden, as of 2011, you had state prison inmates serving long sentences in the county jail. And when they were released from their sentences, they were no longer regulated by the state parole. They were regulated by local probation officers. So probation officers, who have a very busy job, all of a sudden had these swollen caseloads of lots of experienced and repeat felons that they had to be in charge of supervising. So that's just sort of the foundation on top of all of the crimes that keep occurring that they have to stay on top of. So then what happens? So now we have this big population, the county jails, 
what happened from there. So then the, the sort of trend of wanting to, to decriminalize or reduce accountability for uh, offenses continues and it ultimately manifests itself with the passage of Proposition 47, which has been all over the news and really targeted theft and drug crimes. And it, it did a couple of things um, to sort of oversimplify it. It redefined what it meant to steal something. And, and in California, in most states, what separates the degree of your offenses oftentimes is how much thought you put into it in advance. There's a, there's a wonderful old quote by Harry Truman that says, even a dog knows the difference between being kicked and being tripped over. There's, all, there's this sort of human nature element of offenses that if you do something spur of the moment without thinking about it, it's less bad than if you intend to do it. We see that in homicide law. If you accidentally kill someone, it's typically punished much less than if you intentionally do it. Same thing with theft. What Prop 47 did was say, not only are we going to raise the dollar amount of the things that you steal. So you used to steal things up to $400 and then it could be a felony and you could either go to jail, you could maybe go to prison, but the, the consequences were more severe. They raised that amount to 950, meaning you could steal more before you got to that extra level of consequences. So that was the biggest thing that most people latch on to. But one of the, one of the nuances of Prop 47 was saying when you walk into an establishment with the purpose of stealing, you've committed a burglary. That's what a burglary is. A burglary is a crime that occurs in your head. I'm intending to steal when I walk in. So when I walk into a store and I decide to take things, and maybe I have to cut off security things, or maybe I, have to, I bring in a bag, or, or I just grab and I run out, that's a burglary. And under the law, that's either a misdemeanor or a felony, depending on how a particular district attorney wants to charge it, depending on prior record and things like that, value and how bad the crime is. What Prop 47 said was, no, no matter how you steal and no matter how many times you steal, doesn't matter the amount of thought you put into it, if you go in and you steal, we're going to treat you as if it was your first time and you can only suffer the consequences of a misdemeanor. And when you think about what I, we just talked about with realignment, let's say someone goes in for the fourth time into a Rite Aid or some business and steals a whole bunch of things walks out, gets caught, everyone would expect that person on his fourth time would do some sort of jail time. So they arrest that person, store owner calls him, says, hey, take this person to jail, he stole from me and we caught him. Police arrest him, they take him to the jail, and the jail is filled with all of those state prison inmates that we just sent back to the county jails. And the sheriff of every county says, okay, here's the guy that just stole from the drugstore. Which prison inmate who's in here for spousal abuse or robbery or you name the serious offense that landed them in prison in the first place and now they're in county jail, which one of these do I let out so that I can put this very deserving of a jail sentence thief in? And now he's faced with a terrible, he or she is faced with a terrible choice because the jails are crowded. So some large cities or large counties can't put anybody in jail. And you may get a, a year-long jail sentence and you're out in a few days. Some counties are able to adapt better and, and might have space, but it, it makes this incredible swollen criminal justice system where it feels like this person is never going to be held accountable. And then that perpetuates this thought, well, if the police can't arrest because it's only a misdemeanor or the police know they can't take them to jail, maybe they write them a ticket instead. And then when the business owner sees someone steal from them and all they get is a ticket or they go to jail and they're out the same day and then they come back and steal, Eventually, it doesn't take too many more times than that for a business owner to say, what's the point? I'm just going to end up raising prices. I'm going to close my business. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. But calling the police doesn't really work because the police can't do much. And then eventually, 
they don't call the police. And then, lo and behold, we see statistics come out saying, hey, theft has gone down. Look, we don't have as much theft anymore, when really what we have is fewer business owners calling the police. So trying to, to combat that sort of apathy or dissatisfaction in the criminal justice system is, is what I think a lot of prosecutors and law enforcement are actively trying to do to the community to, uh, to engage them and teach them that we still have tools available, we just have to get a little more creative. So is that why the statistics also showing that the crime is, is not up, right? Just because fewer people are being arrested or being going to jail doesn't mean there's less crime. And that's a, that's a big distinction. Less crime reporting means crime rates are going to go down. The, the problem, one of the problems with Prop 47 and some of the policies afterward is it, is it treats everybody the same. It treats the first time thief like the repeat thief. When it's the repeat thief that is sort of creating this sentiment among our community that, well, nothing can be done. The criminal justice system is really the last place that you can apply a one-size-fits-all approach. Every case, every defendant, every victim, every set of circumstances is unique. The only way to decide who deserves to go to jail, who deserves to go to a drug treatment program, who needs mental health treatment, is to roll up your sleeves and look at the particular case. But to paint all thieves as undeserving of accountability is just as bad as saying every thief needs to go to jail for the maximum. There, there needs to be balance. The criminal justice system is built upon the idea of balance. And that balance comes with discretion. Someone has to look at the case and decide what is appropriate. I think we would all agree that the person who steals for the first time to feed their family is less deserving of consequences than someone who's stolen high-end electronics or alcohol ten times so that they can sell it on the street. Those two people should be treated differently. Under, under Prop 47 and a series of, of policies that have been enacted by the legislature since, we're forced to treat all of them the same. Folks, you've probably been hearing me talk about Virify for a while now. Virify has been getting a ton of phone calls from you, and I thank you for supporting an investment that actually helps people. A lot of people are talking about this investment, and I'd like to review the basics with you. First off, yes, it's true. You can earn up to 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or to the Fed. You can turn your income on or off, compounded, whatever you choose, and there are absolutely no fees. There are no restrictions on your principal if you ever need your money back, and you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. If you are not sure if you can trust this economy, this secure collateralized portfolio may be a very good option for you. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refi.com. Folks, I take my endorsements very seriously. If you're looking for a solid investment that helps people, contact my friends at Yrefi and then tell them Siamai Karami sent you. Now let's go back to the interview. Do you think we're doing this in California because we kind of heard the story of the person that needs the, to steal for the family? You know, like we kind of heard those stories and then we were like, okay, we're going to vote for this because... I think so. I think oftentimes those sort of anecdotes are what drives sometimes policymakers. And I've been in Senate Public Safety and Assembly Public Safety Committee hearings where I hear anecdotes turn into policy. I watch these stories and say, well, that's terrible. You should never put someone like that in jail. And I would listen to a story and say, I uh, agree. If the, if the facts of that case are true, the person probably doesn't deserve to go to jail. But for every person like that, there are people who are willfully choosing to steal. 
and need to be held accountable. And, and, and let me be clear, accountability comes in many different forms. Accountability doesn't mean you just go to jail. But if you don't have any accountability, if you have all carrot and no stick, you remove the incentive or the consequence for someone to try and better their lives. Oftentimes, and I hear it all the time with people who have struggled with addiction, what saved them was when they got arrested because that's what forced them into drug treatment. And the other thing that Prop 47 did, we said it talked about theft and with narcotics, is it reduced all of the, the possession of hard drugs to misdemeanors. It used to be a misdemeanor or a felony. And that doesn't mean everyone, addicts don't belong in jail. I don't think there's any prosecutor that thinks they want to just put a drug addict in jail. That's not going to help them. But it's the consequence. It's, it's the fact that they're getting prosecuted and that jail is a worse alternative than treatment that drives them into it and will give them the opportunity for success. Because very rarely do people wake up one day suffering from an addiction and say, today's the day I'm going to go get sober. And if they try that, they're going to fail a lot. And they may never even get there. But it's that, it's that push. And right after Prop 47 reduced all of these drug crimes to misdemeanors, the enrollment in our drug courts, meaning these courts that are designed to get people back on their feet, the numbers, the enrollment dropped immediately, almost by half, if not by more, because they didn't have to be there. There were no consequences. You couldn't go to jail if you failed. And if I don't have any consequence, and I'm suffering from an addiction, and I'd rather go out on the street and get high than fulfill this course, I'll go do it. And we didn't have that ability to get them back into their treatment program. Is this why we are seeing a lot of people doing drugs in the streets? Is that I think that has contributed to the increase in addiction rates. I think it also is closely tied to our homelessness crisis because the people that are in those treatment programs have the best chance of success to getting stable housing, stable employment, job skills, mental health treatment, whatever it is they need. When people are arrested, we assess them and we see what is driving your criminality. If it's terrible choices or you just decided you want to be a criminal, well, then separation from society as punishment is probably what you need. But if you're stealing because you're feeding a drug addiction, then you need treatment. And that's what we want to give to you. But if you don't get that, you're not going to get better. And then you're going to go back out. You're going to get high. You're going to steal so that you can continue to get high. And eventually, whatever support network you had outside of drug treatment, your family, your friends, your parents, your grandma, your aunts, your uncles, they're going to end up becoming exhausted trying to deal with you. And eventually, you're going to get kicked out. And we see it all the time. We see people that are couch surfing and, and on the verge of homelessness due to addiction issues. And at some point, they get thrown out. And if they were required to go into treatment and get sober, they would have a chance at success. But instead, they're out on the street repeating this terrible cycle of criminality to feed a drug addiction. And it, it's not surprising, it's not rocket science, you just need to be able to take that person who is dealing with addiction and get them into treatment, someone who doesn't want to go. And that's a, that's a very difficult position to be in. But oftentimes, the criminal justice system, we are best situated to help solve this issue because they've intersected with the criminal justice system and committed a crime. So was there any other laws that we passed or rewarded for as the public that, that caused this, what we're seeing in these videos that are going around and what we're hearing from people? There has been. There has been one other voter-enacted initiative that um, has contributed, I think, to this sort of problem we're in, this sort of lack of balance in the criminal justice system. That was Prop 57. That was designed, in theory, 
to remove what was remaining of the nonviolent inmates in the state prison and reduce and shorten their sentences so that they could get out earlier, conceivably so that they could take advantage of opportunities in the community to earn redemption and become productive members of society. To give them a second chance. To right. give them a second chance. The problem is, as we mentioned earlier, this is a one-size-fits-all. It's a formulaic process by which someone serving a particular period of time is sentenced to prison, and by mathematical calculation, they reduce the sentence that they get, which is problematic on a number of levels, because number one, the person isn't earning their right to redemption. They are being given it, and they are being given it not only by virtue of Prop 57, but Prop 57 empowered the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to award credits in a whole host of ways that we don't fully understand. So honestly, as an elected district attorney, I have people from my county being released from prison early and I don't know why. And I might get a notice and I might not. And it's infuriating and it's dangerous because a lot of the people that are released are not fit to be released. There needs to be someone who rolls up their sleeves and looks and does an assessment of these people and says, okay, this person is probably likely not going to be dangerous. This person is. This person should not get an automatic reduction of their sentence. That's the sort of formulaic response. In reality, I'm sitting at council table with a crime victim or a loved one of a crime victim who has been hurt. And I have told this person, and the judge has told this person, this is the sentence. This is the time they are going to serve. This is how much time you have to think about how long you'll never have to see or worry about this person because they're being separated for, from society for what they've done. And you've just artificially reduced it. And now, what I've told that crime victim or that survivor or that family member is not true because I was operating on what the law was, not what the policies of the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation were when they said, we're going to reduce a sentence. So now we are in this position of having to contact victims and or family members and say, I hate to tell you this, but remember when I said this person was going away for 15 years for what they did to your mother, your mom, your dad, you, well now they're getting out. Or I just read in the newspaper that they did get out, and that happened twice last year in our county. We had two inmates who were sentenced to state prison who later were released early for reasons we can't determine, only to commit murders in a neighboring county. And nothing was more aggravating to me than reading that someone we had prosecuted and separated from society to keep our community safe got out and the worst could have happened. They, they killed someone and are currently being prosecuted for murder. And so Prop 57 was really the driver of that. We've had a number of other bills passed by the legislature that has sought to undo what I call the finality of judgments, meaning after the cases are over, the legislature has granted more and more opportunities for people to petition to get out of their sentences. Don't get me wrong, we have the appellate process and we have the writ of habeas corpus process that is designed to allow inmates to challenge their convictions and that is a healthy form of our democracy. That's why we have the best criminal justice system in the, in the world. But making it easier and easier and changing the definitions of things so that people can try and get out sooner because we want this artificial number uh, to get out of prison is not right and it's dangerous. So even the current system is saying you did something wrong, maybe you, you hurt somebody and you're going to, to jail for three years, but then you end up coming out. 
So essentially, even with the standards of the current system, is still so, it's something different. The outcome is it, it absolutely is, and 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 we have tried to restore some of that balance or some of the truth uh, in in the sentencing or the intellectual honesty in those sentences. Um, there's always been a mathematical calculation, and people always say, "Oh, yeah, we always know if you get 20 years, it means you're out in 10." There's always been legal formulas by which people have the opportunity to earn good time or good behavior credits, which is great because people, if they have. They, they regret what they did and they can Absolutely. come back. If you earn it, just like anything else, just like we tell our children, you get a reward if you earn it. You don't just automatically get to get out of what your, what your punishment or your accountability is. And what our law has now done and a lot of the policies and, and um, that have been enacted by both the legislature and the, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation says, we're just going to apply those across the board. And then you, you've rendered the whole purpose of our prosecution somewhat meaningless if, if, if the punishment doesn't mean anything anymore. I'm all for earning redemption, but you have to earn it. And I have, I have been a prosecutor that has agreed in parole hearings where I believed people have been rehabilitated and said, I think this person is worthy of release. But for every one of those, I've stood up and said, absolutely not. This person hasn't earned it. Um, but the only way you know that is by going through the entire history of someone, not through a law that says anyone charged with this or anyone serving a sentence of this or shorter should get out earlier. That doesn't work. That deprives the system of its essence and it deprives our victims and our survivors of, of their dignity and their faith in this system and why they went through it and all of this heart-wrenching process in the, in the criminal justice system through the trial and things like that. Before we continue, we would like to thank Shen Yun for sponsoring this channel. I lived in China for two years and experienced two different Chinas. One is the China we know now, unfortunately with communism. And the other is ancient Chinese culture with 5,000 years of history, strong values, ethics and morality that has been lost. Shen Yun Performing Arts is reviving this 5,000 years of Chinese traditional culture. It takes you back in time to magical world of ancient China with a unique blend of brilliant dancing, beautiful costumes, and legends coming to life. Go to ShenYun.com to find out the schedule and theater information. It's a lifetime experience you don't want to miss. Book your tickets today. Now let's go back to the interview. And now you as a district attorney and you've been in the criminal justice system for a, for a while, for a long About time. 24 years. And what you see in the criminal justice system and the cases I just explained to you, how does all this make you feel? I'm frustrated. Um, I, I, I monitor the Capitol. I see what goes on. I see how the thought process and it, and, it, and it aggravates me when I see policies that I know that will put lives in danger get enacted for the wrong reasons. Uh, which is why I try and be active and I try and weigh in and say, here's, here's what I think this, I th what will happen. Um, we saw that with Prop 47. Prosecutors said, when you pass this, in about 10 years, we're going to see businesses closing because people are going to be stealing right and left and you're going to see addicts on the street. And people said, oh, you're just these draconian prosecutors trying to, to scare everybody uh, so that you can lock more people up in prison. And nothing could be further from the truth. We're trying to keep our community safe in a smart way. So while I get aggravated when I see it, it motivates me because I care about this system and I believe in it and I think it is, it, it is in constant need of improvement, which motivates me to want to get the word out so that 
our voting public knows how these bills are passed, why they are passed, and why they should or shouldn't be passed, and to get engaged and get informed because it breeds distrust and nothing is worse than our community distrusting the, the criminal justice system that is supposed to be fair and protect them and nothing is more aggravating than, than people saying, what's the point, I'll just leave the state or have no faith in the system. And that, that to me is not acceptable and motivates me and my staff to try and get the message out to, to help educate our community. So you mentioned the trust in the criminal justice system. Was there a point that you developed this trust or was there something happened that you saw that this, this is a unique system that we have? I think, well, I always joke that I am a product of too many Hardy Boys novels and Law and Order episodes. I have always been a, been a crime and legal junkie and I knew somehow, some way, when I grew up I was going to be involved in the criminal justice system because it fascinated me. And the more I learned about how our system of justice originated, some of the things we've borrowed from other countries and other cultures, um, what has worked, what hasn't worked, um, missteps along the way that we've corrected, has taught me that all in all this system is designed to be fair. Um, the idea that as a member of the district attorney's office charged with the ability to charge someone with a crime, I can't do it unless I reach my legal threshold. I can't deprive someone of their liberty without proving their guilt to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt is, is awesome to me. I get goosebumps just thinking about it because there are countries where that doesn't exist, where a mere accusation or not even an accusation, people disappear in the night. And here, we, the emphasis is on the rights of the defendant, sometimes in my opinion, almost too much and not enough on the victims and the survivors of crime. But in terms of fairness and how the system has to operate, it, it's awe-inspiring. So when I, when I get frustrated about with some of these policies and things I see on TV, it motivates me to just to want to fix it um, because it, it, you can't dismantle it. You can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to be able to improve it and make it continue to be the greatest system and even better. Some people have told us, Morgan, that the criminal justice system in California is broken. Do you think, do you believe is true? I do not at all. I think there are aspects of it that are in desperate need of improvement, just like any system, like our, our medical system or our educational system. Generally, it is strong, but those sweeping statements that it's broken, it breeds that apathy and it breeds that, that disenfranchisement that is, I think, toxic to a community. We, we have to be able to trust and believe in our criminal justice system. So the idea that it's broken is very troubling to me. Does it need repairs now and then? Yes, but it needs the right kind of repairs. And what, what I get concerned about is when the fixes to that concept that it's broken is, let's just tear it down and start over. Or let's just uh, make this sweeping reform to just take it in a completely different direction. That doesn't work. The, these extreme remedies on either side, whether they're too harsh or too lenient, don't work. It needs balance. And the only way to get balance is for people to put aside their egos, put aside their politics and their ideologies, and to see what works. And until we can all sort of do that with level heads, we'll keep seeing pendulums swing left and right when it belongs right in the middle. Now you go testify and you are um, kind of active on, on some of the laws in, in the Capitol. What are your thoughts on the way the Capitol looks at this? Because we had a lot of pro-public safety laws that really didn't go anywhere. <laughs> they, they did not. I am active. I am sort of a, a 
I describe myself as a legislative nerd. I am fascinated by the, the process uh, and how the process of that idea ultimately becomes uh, put into effect and then how that translates in the world of public safety into our world and how does that affect our victims, our survivors, our defendants. So I, I stay engaged. I did it at my, my old office. I continue to do it in this office. We identify problems and we sponsor bills. Um, but my biggest sort of frustration has been with our committee process in, in the Capitol. There's a, a lack of balance, I think, ideologically that leads to sweeping measures. And when I see good ideas, or at least ideas that should be debated amongst all of the representatives in our state, when I see those ideas getting extinguished at the very first policy committee level because it's made up of five people from one party and two people from another, and good ideas never see the light of day, because it's just known, sorry, if a particular party isn't in power or if this does not fall within a particular ideology, that idea is extinguished. And that, that frustrates me. I have, for example, there was a bill about advising people of the dangers of fentanyl and what could happen if they continued to sell. It was a bill that had more co-authors than it even needed to get votes. And it couldn't even get a vote out of the Public Safety Committee, out of this first policy committee. And this was, this was a good debate. This was a debate that I would like to hear from the lawmakers from all over the state. And instead, it was a small handful that had unilateral authority to make sure that that bill never got the light of day. And to me, that's a very undemocratic process in a house of democracy. So that part has been frustrating. But again, I don't get discouraged or frustrated. I want to engage our public because they need to know about how this process works too. So we try and educate our community on the, on the lawmaking process as well when it relates to criminal justice. Now, do you think it's gonna get to a point that Californians will see something, some tragedy would happen? I think this, this story of shooting in a normal store it's, it's tragic, but if people still haven't seen it, because a lot of people don't see these things until they become really big or they don't believe it, until it gets a number of them. Do you think there will be a huge backlash in the state? On I think there is. I don't know that it will be a, an enormous outrage, but I think there is now a, a pretty loud roar um, wanting some change. And I think we've seen that. I think we saw that last year in the particularly in the Assembly Public Safety Committee when there were a number of bills relating to human trafficking and relating to fentanyl that did not get any debate. And it took the pressure of people of their own party, including the governor, to say, wait a minute, this deserves a debate. And then they brought them back. And we had, we had some debates about issues relating to the fentanyl crisis. We had a debate about a, a piece of legislation affecting human trafficking. And those a couple of years ago, those debates never would have happened. Those, those ideas would have been extinguished, and that would have been the end of it. And this last season, we saw at least the arguments happening. And I think that'll continue to happen. I think balance is slowly beginning to be restored a little bit better than it has been over the last decade. Morgan Geyer, District Attorney of Placer County. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. If you haven't checked out CaliforniaInsider.com, we highly recommend you do that now because we're going to have a lot of news and videos there. And on top of what we have there right now, we're building a really big platform to cover what's happening in California. So you can be informed. We're going to have more shows, more videos from all aspects of life in California. Go to CaliforniaInsider.com and we'll see you there.